You know, good health is the best inheritance you can possibly pass down. So the sooner you can replace what's missing in your kid's diet, the stronger, smarter, and so much healthier they'll become. That's why Child Life Essentials should be your new best friend. They have a complete award-winning range of natural supplements and multivitamins for kids from birth to late teens. Child Life Vitamins have been specifically formulated to address the key issues and challenges kids deal with daily, like brain development, immune support, and their little bodies growing properly. Child Life Essentials are the world's most loved children's vitamins for a reason. They're all natural, non-GMO, gluten-free, and allergy-friendly when possible. And best of all, kids love the taste. So take a look at the Child Life range. It's exactly the foundation they need to thrive throughout childhood and to succeed beyond. You can learn more at childlifenutrition.com. Hi, I'm Lisa Davis. So glad you're listening to Health Power. I just read an amazing book. This book is impressive. It has over 18 different areas to consider when looking at your lifestyle and altering your lifestyle. It is by Emily Goldmears. The book is Optimizing Your Health, an Approachable Guide to Reducing Your Risk of Chronic Disease. Emily Goldmears is a mother to two sons, a research analyst, a consultant to a New York-based think tank, and sits on several nonprofit boards focused on science and medicine. Before she discovered how interesting and fulfilling scientific research is, she was a practicing lawyer. While she did not love the practice of law, it did teach her the valuable set of careful and extensive research. She is now part of a growing group of society called Citizen Scientists. Emily, welcome to Health Power. Hello, Lisa. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm so glad to have you on. I've read thousands of books, and I was just so impressed with the amount of, clearly the amount of work, the amount of detail, and the amount of research. So I just, I commend you for a job incredibly well done. I wanted to bring up your dad. I, I love the dedication, quote, to my father, who was brilliant, funny, and had an unwavering sense of morality. I miss him every day. And talk about your dad. Tell us about him and how he was sort of the impetus for this book. Well, I adored my dad. I got very lucky in the father department. I thought he was the smartest person I know, and he was the kindest. And I just really loved him. And when he started to develop vascular dementia, which is what ultimately he died from, I was devastated. And I watched how the allopathic healthcare system was treating him. And I must say, I was kind of horrified. They really weren't doing anything for him. They were giving him one pharmaceutical after another, many of which were doing cross purposes. And I thought there must be a better way. And I began researching to see if there was anything that I could find that would help in slowing the progression of the disease. And I think he was, his disease was too far advanced. And there's so much conflict in the area of neurodegenerative disease, you know, despite billions of dollars allocated to drug research and brilliant scientists who have devoted their lives, there really hasn't been a lot of meaningful progress made in this area. And yet the numbers of people who are supposed to be coming down with this disease are quite staggering. So I found it frightening. I really did. And I watched him decline at a slow but steady pace and thought to myself, I will do whatever it takes to hopefully avoid this but if I can't avoid it, postpone the onset of it. And I began learning a lot of things where there are no guarantees, but 
they really do mitigate the consequences and they can postpone the onset. And I changed everything. After a lifetime of not great habits, I literally did a 180 degree change. I love how candid you are. I love that you tell us about the medical industrial complex and you write the healthcare industry profits from sick people. And that is so sad, but true. Expand on that, on that for us, Emily. Well, unfortunately, they, there's no real incentive for people to get well from the healthcare system. And, and when I realized that and how much money there is in sickness, I thought there are many things that people can do that are either low cost or free that can help them. And, but there's no financial incentive for the business community or the healthcare community to promote any of this because people can't make money on it. So I thought, I am going to tell people that there are things that they can do that don't cost any money and that they should do and they'll feel better. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I thought this was interesting. You write about your feelings about the word prevention and how you prefer uh, individual resilience. Yeah, I think that resilience is the key. And while prevention is certainly better than symptom treatment, symptom sure. treatment being the focus of our current healthcare system, prevention is a little tricky because the reality is we cannot prevent everything. We're humans living in a world and there's disease. And so we cannot prevent everything and we have to acknowledge that. But what we can do is we can make, we can optimize our own bodies to the point where we were, we will be resilient. If we are faced with a pathogen, hopefully our bodies will be resilient enough so that we can fight it and get over it quickly. You know, I just want to go through the 18 things and we're not going to be able to focus on all of them, but I mean, I took enough notes to focus on. <laughs> we could do a whole series, Emily. All right. So you've got your or oral microbiome, your gut microbiome, immunity and inflammation, stress, toxins, sleep, nutrition, movement, respiratory physiology, hormones, cold thermogenesis, light optimization, hydration, fasting, supplements, genetics, epigenetics, and genomics, testing and tracking, and clinical studies. I, let's start from the beginning. I did take some uh, notes down about the microbiome of the mouth, which is so interesting because, you know, I talk a lot on the show about the microbiome, and, and I had just really been focusing on the gut. And you write, quote, your mouth is a gateway to your digestive health. While the gut is central to human health, the health of the gut is directly influenced by oral health. There is a clear relational relationship between our oral health and our systemic wellness. It's true. Digestion actually begins in the mouth. And when you have poor oral health, it affects the entire body. And our oral care products are filled with so many chemicals that people don't realize. If they use mouthwash, one of the main ingredients in most mouthwashes is alcohol. And then what that does is it kills all the bacteria in our mouth. And people have been told the wrong thing, to fear bacteria. We are composed of bacteria and we have both good and bad bacteria. And when one ingests oral, uh, a mouthwash filled with alcohol or some of these other terribly toxic oral healthcare products, they're killing all the bacteria, both the good and the bad. And that leads to some very bad results. Yeah, you write about products containing alcohol, artificial sweeteners, uh, coal tar, colored dyes, DEA, microplastics, propane glycol, sodium fluoride, sodium lauryl sulfate, SLS or SLE, 
triclosan and do not use them. And I 100% agree. That's something we're very big here on Health Power is we want to stay away from these things. There are so many toothpastes out there that don't have these things in them. Exactly. The the non-toxic product world is emerging and bursting. There are so many alternatives. And that's why I added a resource chapter, because I've done all this research and to save people the time and effort, I list, here are some non-toxic brands that are dependable and good. Now, having said that, I want to add that what happens frequently, much to my dismay, is that these wonderfully well-meaning companies that that produce these non-toxic products, a lot of times they achieve great success and then they're bought and absorbed by bigger conglomerates. And you can't continue to depend that the non-toxic ingredients will continue as described because I think it must be cheaper to have all those chemicals in there than the non-toxic alternatives. It's so funny that you say that, Emily, because I was in love with Mrs. Meyer cleaning products. And I had a woman on the show recently, and she just pulled the rug out from under me and said, they got bought. Go and read the ingredient. And it said fragrance. And I was like, crap, you want to avoid the word fragrance because that can have all kinds of chemicals and you have no idea. And that really bummed me out. But yeah, they were bought. And so what you're saying is just so important. Indeed, I made the same mistake with Mrs. Myers. True. Yes. I, you know, because I think it started out with a wonderful mission, but they all get bought up. I mean, and that's true for supplements too, which I go into in detail that that is very opaque and there's a real lack of transparency in people. You don't always get what you think you're buying. Yeah, that's important. Well, we'll talk about that while you're on that topic. It's very important. Yes. I mean, the supplement industry is a really complicated one because there's a very low barrier to entry. And so everyone and their brother are entering the supplement industry and selling supplements, even doctors, which years ago, there was a real conflict of interest for doctors to sell things. But that seems to have fallen by the wayside. I'm not quite sure why or how that happened. But what they do is they white label them. And they just simply put their name on it. And there are a small handful, I think it's maybe six big companies that are producing all of the supplements under different brand names. And a lot of times you are not getting what the label says you're getting. There are third party testing that have revealed that the amount of vitamins and minerals that are stated on the ingredient list don't match up with the actual amount. That's one thing. The other thing is many of these are filled with fillers and binders and excipients and things that we do not need to be ingesting. So one needs to really choose their supplement brand quite carefully. Yeah. And just so you know, here on Health Power, if we have any products on for sponsors, which we do, we research big time. Another one coming up is Omnibiotic, which is an incredible probiotic with tons and tons of research behind it. So yeah, we do our homework because we we want you to get the best information. Speaking of getting the best information, Emily, I absolutely love that at the end of every chapter, you have these great action steps. So going back to uh, looking at our mouth, Uh, We mentioned about the products and that you should stop using them. You should quit smoking. You can consider your nutrition. I want to go down to immunity and inflammation. And you go really deeply into immune cells and autoimmunity. And you write, the key is to modulate your immune system. What does that mean? So I wrote that. I chose the word modulate purposefully because through the pandemic, we 
all heard a lot of advice that you want to strengthen your immune system. But in fact, that's not true because we saw with in the pandemic, a lot of people whose immune systems are too strong resulted in a cytokine storm. And so you don't want an overly strong immune system. You want it to be modulated, meaning balanced for you. And, and we're also very different. And that's a main theme throughout my book is that what works for your friend may not work for you or could be downright harmful for you. So we have to do a little work on our own, but you don't want an overly strong immune system in the same way that you don't want a weak immune system. And so that's why I chose modulate. Yeah, that's a great word. You also talk about food in your immune system, stress in your immune system, and then you have some great action steps. Avoid sugar and other pro-inflammatory foods. Uh, you talk about managing your stress. Getting out in nature is great for immunity. I love all of those. I want to go down to toxins, which we talked about a little bit. This is scary. The U.S., this was from your book, quote, the U.S. permits over 85,000 chemicals to be used in our food supply, water, and commercial materials. Most of these have not been tested for safety. Increasing evidence indicates that exposure to the ubiquitous presence of toxins is a big factor in the rise of chronic disease. 85,000. Isn't that staggering, Lisa? I know. And, you know, if you go to the European Union, they're far more diligent. Yep, I was about to say that. Yep. Banning these chemicals. And, you know, I guess it must just be proprietary that there's a lot of money to be made in these chemicals. And so, therefore, they're allowed. I don't really understand the logic behind it because they're quite harmful and they are ubiquitous. They are in everything and they are everywhere. And what I say in the book is that it's unrealistic to eliminate 100% of them. We just can't do that because there are too many of them. But it's very realistic to reduce our exposure somewhat. People can do that. It takes a little bit of work. But if you get an air filter for your home, if you get a water filter, both of those are critical. And then if you go through your home cleaning products and your personal care products and familiarize yourself with the chemicals in all of them, you can trade them in for non-toxic varieties. And that will make a difference. Those steps will make a difference. So I talk a lot about how important sleep is, but you really get into it. You get into circadian rhythms, something called chronobiology, five stages of sleep. Uh, What is chronobiology? Well, that is a really interesting kind of emerging field. And it is promoted by a PhD named Michael Bruce. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Yes, I've interviewed him. And he's actually one of the experts in my book on healthy living. So he's great. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I thought his information was so fantastic because growing up personally, I had great difficulties with sleep. I couldn't go to sleep early and I couldn't wake up. And so, and everyone was, you know, I was late for school and it was truly intrusive into my life and I didn't understand why. And so this, his theories kind of go a long way to explain that we're all so different and we all have different chronobiologies. So I thought that that was heartening. Um, And there are ways to adjust your chronobiology. I mean, I don't know that one can change them dramatically, but you can adjust them. And I talk about A great thing to do is in the morning, within 90 minutes of waking, you go outside and you get light in your eyes, not directly looking into the sun, but you get some light exposure. And if you live at a high latitude, you can get a light machine. And if you do that, and then late at night, or or as the sun is setting, 
you try and expose yourself to that spectrum of light. And that in a few days is a really effective way of resetting your circadian rhythms and can help you with your sleep. Yeah, it's so huge. In looking at nutrition, you are what you eat. You write, quote, food is one of the most important factors of your health and one of the most complicated areas of science. What, what makes it so complicated, Emily? What did you find in your research? Oh, it, it was and remains very complicated to me. And there are many reasons why. I think everyone has experienced that they can read six stories on why eggs or coffee or wine or many other things <laughs> are great for you and as many stories as to why they're bad for you. And I think part of the underlying reason for this complication, there are many reasons, but the main one is that we're all very different genetically, biochemically, physiologically, and one person can do really well eating certain foods and another person cannot do well, and maybe is harmed by them. And it's really important to understand your own reaction to all of these foods. Now, the other reason it's complicated is because the clinical studies are hard to rely on, because they give participants in these clinical studies questionnaires, and they have to self-report. And as humans, we tend not to be 100% accurate in our self-reporting. We either over or underestimate in what we're eating. And so you can't really rely on them. They're not done in typical clinical settings where they can be monitored. You talk about the food lobby and you basically say the food lobby does not care about our health. It's true. I was shocked to learn some of the things that I learned, that there were food scientists in the laboratory trying to find combinations of sweet and salty that would result in addiction. You know, and so many people are addicted to these processed foods and it's hard to stop eating them. And then sugar is a biggie. And I can speak from personal experience because sugar was truly my favorite food group. I love sugar and it's quite addicting. And as it turns out, there is really no benefit whatsoever to sugar. It is quite harmful in many ways. And I've recently learned that these alternatives that people are suggesting, like honey and maple syrup and coconut sugar, our bodies react in the same way in terms of glucose spikes. And they really harm us. When you're talking about uh, metabolism, I thought this was interesting. You, you write that you want to have a flexible metabolism. What does that mean? That means that you want to be able to shift from burning glucose to burning fat. And I just read a staggering statistic just the other day that only 12% of Americans are metabolically healthy. So that's really a big epidemic that we have. I mean, that's kind of a staggering statistic. Um, and metabolic health is very important because that is the precursor to inflammation and many diseases. I was a runner for most of my life. And because of that, I, I could and I did eat anything and everything, mostly bad food. And I didn't understand what I was doing internally at the time. I had no idea the harm I was doing because I was so active that I could eat these foods and not have an exterior result that was harmful. But internally, I was doing a lot of bad things. And it wasn't until I learned about them and understood them. And I thought, Oh, I have to turn the ship around. Yeah. When did you figure that out, by the way? Very late in life. <laughs> Very late <laughs> in life. I mean, I spent the majority of my life doing everything wrong. It was 
when I watched my father get sick and I needed to understand. So really it was about four or five years ago that I turned everything around. That's great. I think that's so good to hear. And that's what's so shocking. It's like people go, oh, but you're a runner. Of course you're healthy. No. Not necessarily. And speaking of running, I love that you call the chapter movement. That's another thing I like to, not that, you know, I, I like exercise and I enjoy exercising, but I think for some people it's just movement, like just move your body. Right. And I like that you write, you don't have to be endurance athlete. And I especially like the NEAT, which is non-exercise activity thermogenesis, which is uh, cooking, house cleaning, gardening, shopping, climbing stairs, and even fidgeting. Wow. Talk, talk to us about yes. NEAT. Well, I'm a fidgeter. So that was heartening for me to learn about that. And I also learned that, I mean, I was always active. I would always go to the gym and I was a runner and I did, I loved movement and exercise, but I know, I think I, I was doing it wrong because I learned that you can go to the gym for an hour every day. And if you come home and you sit in front of your computer, you have not done yourself any favors. You are much better off sitting at your computer, if that's what your life dictates, and every 45 minutes, get up and walk around. Go up and down the stairs if you have stairs, or just walk around, do some jumping jacks, move or move some heavy furniture. Do whatever you can. And I am a fidgeter, and I was, <laughs> I like to learn that that, you know, in a very small way is helpful. But really, getting up and just moving it around, it doesn't have to be conventional, traditional exercise, but not being sedentary is really the goal. Yeah, that really is. Uh, I love chapter nine, respiratory physiology, also known as breathing. And you talk about nose versus mouth breathing and you write breathing through the mouth rather than the nose is an indicator of breathing dysfunction. Yes, I think that so many people are unconsciously breathing incorrectly and it's sort of an autonomic response breathing, but we don't, so we don't think about it. But it turns out that if you breathe through your mouth, you're not getting as much, much oxygen to your brain and therefore your blood cells. And there's a lot of adverse outcomes from that kind of breathing. And it takes a little bit of work, although not much, to switch from mouth breathing to nose breathing. And it's really a worthwhile change to make. You know, at least once or twice a day, I do the four, seven, eight uh, breathing, which you Inhale through your nose for four, you hold it for seven, and then you exhale for eight. Sometimes I find it hard to hold for seven. <laughs> I don't know if that's just me, but uh, it does help me relax. It does. It does. And they have found that a longer exhale from an inhale is a really wonderful way to calm your nervous system. It's all about a longer exhale. And it can switch you from sympathetic, which is fight or flight, to parasympathetic, which is rest and digest. And that's kind of an easy fix. If one is anxious um, or nervous in any way, if you just do some breathing exercises and you exhale a little bit longer, you will see that you'll end up calming yourself down. Yeah. And in the book, you have great action steps. You've got the 365 method. I mentioned the 478, uh, pranayama breathing, alternate nostril breathing, box breathing. And how do you say this one? But Pateco breathing? Yes. What is that? I've heard of that. Um, there are, well, there's so many different breathing methods, you know, and when you just mentioned, just to go back for one second sure. to some, the 47 that you do, um, 
if you you can try doing the box breathing, which is four, 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 four. Um, yeah, I might be better at that, I was thinking. And, you know, just from a counting perspective, you know, it's a little bit easier to do. And literally, you build up to it. Um, and the more you do it, like everything else, the better you get at it. And breath holding, which is the Buteyko breathing, is a really good way to improve your respiratory physiology. And you learn how to hold your breath or what's called a controlled pause. And that's something that you start slow and you build upon. And I go into it in depth and in detail in the book, but that can help with your lungs because as we age, lung function and capacity diminish. I really want people to get your book. Uh, chapter 10 is hormones. When these decline, so do you. So people, I have a lot of new listeners. So for new listeners and people who've heard the story, I'll make it quick. So I had at 48, I had to have a hysterectomy because I had uh, cantaloupe-sized fibroids. Uh, my mother passed from um, ovarian cancer in 95 at the age of 57. I'm in my 50s. So I said, just take everything out. I'd already had my one daughter. That's all I wanted, one kid. So... I instantly got on hormones because I wasn't, I didn't want to go like, literally, they took everything. They took the ovaries, they took, you know, the whole thing, the uterus. So, and it's been a godsend. It has been a blessing for me. And I was really glad to read in your book, you wrote, quote, despite the widespread controversy surrounding hormone therapy replacement, HRT, there is over 70 years worth of evidence of the benefits of hormone replacement therapy documented in the scientific literature. And you go on to say, years later, and after in-depth analysis, many doctors and scientists have concluded that the study should not be relied upon. If people are like, Lisa, what are you talking about? Tell us about the study and why this is good news for a lot of women. <laughs> so the Women's Health Initiative is considered to be one of the most expensive and one of the most flawed studies ever done. Wow. And there are a lot of reasons for that. The main reason is, well, they used synthetic hormones. They used Prempro and Premarin, which is derived from the conjugated urine from a horse. Now, their physiology is quite different than ours. And the synthetic aspect of it was problematic. And that's distinct from the bioidentical hormone replacement that's widely available today. That's what I use, the bioidentical, yeah. And I must, I must put in a caveat that hormones sure. are controversial. And I'm not suggesting that anyone do this without the guidance of a trusted healthcare pr practitioner, because I don't, you know, that's just very important to do. And one should do what they're most comfortable with doing. I personally am a believer in hormones because I do believe that as our hormones decline, so do we. But now back to the study, the other really big problem with that study is the participants. And I do have a chapter about clinical studies and everyone relies on these clinical studies, but I've learned along the way and I read a fascinating book called The Illusion of, of Scientific Evidence. And it talked about how flawed so many of these studies are that everybody relies on because they can be manipulated and you have to look who sponsors the studies and you need to look at the participants. And this is where the Women's Health Initiative went very, very wrong. The participants in that study were women who had stopped menstruating for so many years and it's advised to begin your hormone replacement within a specific window of stopping menstruation, not five, 10 years. And many of the women were already sick. They already had the beginnings of heart disease. And so when a few of them began to die, it was wrongly associated to the hormone replacement. And they were not the greatest participants in the studies to begin with. And so they abruptly stopped that study. 
And people were frightened by it. And without looking further, it's always important to continue researching and look further. Looking at chapter 11, this is something I keep hearing about, cold thermogenesis. I love this. You write, highly unpleasant, but effective. So right now my pool is not heated and I have not swum yet, even though it's ready. And I'm thinking after reading this, I'm like, I should just dunk myself (laughs) in there. Talk to us. What is cold thermogenesis? Well, you should do it if you can bear it. I mean, I also admit. terrible at it. (laughs) I don't like it. I've read a lot of scientific studies that support the benefits, but it's hard to like. Now, and once again, I think that it's it's a good idea to start very slowly and build up. And thermogenesis is defined as the process of heat production. And cold thermogenesis is the process of heat production resulting from cold exposure. And cold exposure includes cold showers. What I do sometimes, not always, but what I try to do is after my shower at the very end, for 30 seconds, I turn it to cold. And it hasn't become more pleasant, but I try and talk (laughs) myself into the benefits. But you can also do cold plunges into bodies of water. You can wear ice cold vests. You can sleep on a chili pad, which I discuss, um, and cryotherapy, which I have not done because that seems really, really, really cold. That's where you go into those tanks and it gets very, very cold. Yeah, my husband's been doing the uh, before before you get to the benefits. My husband has been doing the, the at the end of the shower, and he's like the healthiest guy I know. I am always like, "You're going to live to like 110." <laughs> it's like insane. But anyway, what are some of the benefits of this? There are many. I mean, you could. I bet your husband feels after he emerges from the shower, he probably feels invigorated. There are cognitive benefits, immune system benefits. You decrease your inflammation. I think you sleep better when you do all of these things. And a lot of it is explained by this concept, which I love, and it's called hormesis. And hormesis is a concept which is defined as exposure to transient stress, brief, Brief, small, acute stress, it creates adaptation, which results in increased resilience. So small exposure to cold, small exposure to extreme heat, and there are many other aspects of hormesis. Our body adapts, and that's what we need. We need to be adaptive. Yeah, we really do. You know, in chapter 13, you look at, look at hydration essential for optimal functioning. And my daughter just like just before I started the interview, she was like, Mom, I haven't drunk enough water today. I'm starting to get headache. I'm not feeling well. And I said, Yeah, you need to drink more water. And people think, well, I just need to drink more. And then if you're drinking fizzy drinks, those are diuretics. And if you're just drinking coffee, yeah, there's water in it. But just good old fashioned water, right? Absolutely. Sometimes you need to add electrolytes to those. And we've all heard that you drink eight glasses of water a day, or, you know, there's, there are, there are certain calculations about your body weight and things like that. But the reality is those are just averages and you have to take into consideration. Are you a male or a female? How tall are you? How much do you weigh? How often do you go to the bathroom? Do you live in a humid or a dry climate? How active you are? All of those are criteria to take into consideration as to how much water you should be ingesting, but it is really critical to be well hydrated. Now, I'm in a humid environment, so what would I be doing? Just for people listening who haven't read the book, and they need to, by the way. (laughs) Well, humid, probably you need slightly less than those of us who live in a dry climate. I'm in Los Angeles, which is very dry. Oh, I'm so jealous. You need uh, more water. And by the way, I'm not great with my water consumption because 
you know, it's just one more thing you have to do. But I try to be better at it. And there are apps that you can download on your phone that will actually remind you to drink water. And there's so many things that can help with all of these lifestyle tweaks. But it is really a component of optimal health to be well hydrated. It really is. You know, one of the things that I was, I've been thinking about lately is I've done uh, interviews on intermittent fasting and I did it for a while and I still do it now and then. When you talk about fasting, what are you talking about? Well, the, the title of the chapter is called fasting, but I go in to all of the different types of fasting and there are many. Um, and fasting has existed for millennial. I mean, you know, it's been going on. It's part of religious communities. Now it's a big part of the health and biohacker community. But you can do water fast. You can just not eat any food. Or you can do intermittent fasting. Or you can do what I prefer is um, time-restricted eating, meaning I compress my eating into a window. And then even within that category, there are a lot of variations, whether it is, you know, an 8-16 window, or you can, you know, play around with what works best for you with the hopes that you can fast for at least 12 hours. And that gives your digestion a rest um, and will help to trigger metabolic changes in gene expression and reduce your chronic disease risk. But now having said that, I have to add, which I do go into in the book, women have to be a little more careful than men because extreme fasting can upset your hormonal balance and you don't want to do that. So once again, you have to kind of play around. There's not a standard formula that works well for everybody. And you have to try and determine what's best for you. Yeah, I agree. Talk to us about what epigenetics is for people who aren't familiar. Well, I'm really interested in that also. I think it is such a fascinating and also a really optimistic area of science. You know, in this very grim time that we're living in, it is nice to find something that's hopeful and positive and optimistic. And what epigenetics is, it's an emerging field of science that states that the study of how your environment and your lifestyle affect the function of your genes. So we can have, we all have genetic variants, all of us do. And some of them are scary to find out, but one shouldn't be frightened. You know, unless it's a monogenic disease, you know, a single gene disease of which there are very few. Most of these are mono, are polygenic. Multiple ge- genetic variants are involved. It doesn't mean, it's not a foregone conclusion that you will get the disease. All it tells you is that you have a slightly higher predisposition to a certain disease based upon your genetic profile. But what epigenetics says is knowing that profile is very useful information because now you can adjust your lifestyle accordingly. And you can, food is information and food has an enormous impact on the expression or the suppression of your genes, as does everything else, your sleep, your exercise, they all of these lifestyles, they affect whether or not these genes are going to be expressed. And what great information to know. Yeah, it is pretty incredible. Uh, In testing and tracking, you can't fix what you don't measure. What are some of the tests that you recommend? Oh, well, I happen to love testing. I really do. Um, If I could, I would test my blood every two weeks. You know, I can't. That gets a little extreme. But (laughs) I think that it gives you really important information. Now, I have to also add, it is not 100% definitive because the results of a blood test are really 
affected by what you ate the night before, how well you slept, your stress level, and they can change, you know, depending upon all of those other lifestyle changes. So, but it's better than not knowing. It really gives you some important information. So I have and continue to test everything, not just my blood, but my saliva, my urine, my stool, everything there is to test, I want to test. I want to know what's going on there. And different tests give you different information. And I'm a believer that you can't fix what you can't measure. If you don't know what your baseline is, where do you know? How do you know how to start? And I've learned my supplement philosophy has really evolved. And I would tell everybody, don't listen to what the suggestions are, these blanket suggestions. First, do some tests. And there are some fantastic tests out there. Blood tests, micronutrient deficiency tests. Find out where you are and only supplement where you're deficient. You don't need to supplement where you're fine. And everyone is fine in certain areas. So that's why I love testing. Oh, that's really cool. And since you've made these changes, you must, I'm assuming you've seen differences in all these tests. I have. I have because I do them continually. I really do because I want to see. It's interesting to see, you know, and sometimes they'll change and I'll think, uh, you know, part of my problem is that I do so many things that when I have improvement, it's kind of hard to pinpoint what I can attribute the improvement to because I'm trying so many (laughs) things, which is probably not well advised. It's probably better to do one thing at a time and then measure so that you can determine whether that's been helpful or not. But I get excited about all these things. I think, oh, I want to do this and that and everything. Um, And I just, you know, I have a huge notebook that tracks all my testing so I can see where I am. That is so cool. Now, I know all 18 of these things are very important. But what would you recommend if somebody's like, okay, I, and again, making small changes, doable changes, doable goals, what would you recommend they start with? That's hard because I think that one should try all of them, but probably sleep or nutrition. Those are the two biggies because if you have good optimized sleep, it affects your productivity, it affects your mood, it affects everything. It's so important. And there are ways to really improve your sleep that are free and easy. You know, you, you, like I said, you go outside and you get daylight, you sleep in a very dark room, cold, you want to be as cold as possible so that you don't wake up as your body heats up and gives you the wrong information. So these are free things to do to optimize your sleep. And then nutrition requires a little bit more effort because you have to determine what works best for you. But I really think the payoff is valuable and worthwhile. All that hard work is important because you'll feel better. Yeah, I agree. Well, was there anything else you wanted to add today, Emily? I'm just so impressed with the work you've done. And I really, really love your book. And it's been such a joy speaking with you. Well, thank you so much. I've enjoyed speaking with you too. I think the only thing I would want to add is I would suggest anybody to just try one thing at a time. Don't be overwhelmed because it can be overwhelming, but do one at a time. And if you feel better, perhaps you'll be incentivized to add to that and maybe do another thing and start slowly and watch how you feel. And I really do believe that you'll want to continue and improving all of your lifestyle. 
Yeah, I agree. Well, the book is Optimizing Your Health. And I love that you have your capitalized. I used to have a show on a couple NPR stations called It's Your Health. It's the same thing. You're the one that needs to, to take care of it because food scientists certainly aren't and our broken healthcare system certainly aren't helping. Uh, again, Optimizing Your Health, an approachable guide to reducing your risk of chronic disease. Emily Gold Mears, tell us all the ways we can find you and your fantastic book. Well, thank you for that. So my book is available at Amazon, um, Barnes & Noble, Walmart, wherever books are sold online and in bookstores. And they can find me. I have a website. I have an Instagram account and I have a LinkedIn account and Facebook, all of them with the same name, Emily Goldmeers. Oh, well, Emily, thank you so much. I'm going to follow you everywhere, and I'm super excited about your book. And if people want to follow me, they can follow me on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter, at Lisa Davis, MPH. And also be sure to follow Naturally Savvy, because Health Power was formerly called Naturally Savvy, but it is still part of NaturallySavvy.com, the fantastic website. So please be sure to check us out. Well, that's it for our show today. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you, and we would appreciate it if you could please raise and review and leave a comment because the more you engage with our podcast, the more you will find it and help other people find it wherever they listen to their podcast. So be sure to follow us. I'm at Andrea Donsky and at Naturally Savvy and Lisa at Lisa Davis MPH. Thank you so much. And please share this episode because the more you share shows you care. We'll see you next time.